Man, at this time we have uh, we started a series last week and uh, on on fuel and understanding the value of having a good source of fuel in your life and and if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go back and and and, and re-listen to that message. But just the idea that that you don't want to live on empty fuel is your energy source. It's your it grows your capacity. Uh, it increases your 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 capabilities and your impact. It does so many things. And fuel being that for a believer being prayer. That if we fill up with and empty ourselves out of fuel and continually, then we will be able to go further, last longer, impact more, have more, just there's so much more to it uh, and connect more and deeper as we'll talk about today. But let me just tell you I, uh, about something that happened this in recent days in my in my life. I had the opportunity to test this whenever my uh, oldest son handed me the keys to Lori's car because he was driving that. He was getting ready. to had to fly back to Georgia, uh, uh, back to report into the Army and all that kind of good stuff. And he said, hey, Dad, Mom's car has a flat tire and it's out of gas. Here's the keys. I need the Jeep. And that was about the exchange of it. So he takes the Jeep and I'm left with a flat tire and an empty tank. And the great thing is I had some friends around and they pumped it full of air. We were able to, to take off. The problem is that when I got in the car then to see how empty, you know, empty's not really empty most of the time. And so this is what I saw uh, on the gauge. So Lori's has this little smart thing that tells you how far, how much further you can go before you will be literally stranded. And if you notice, it says dash, dash, dash. I cannot go anywhere on this car and expect to get there, arrive there, okay? And so what is a man to do in a circumstance like this? Does he call AAA? Does he call for backup? No, he gets in the car and he pushes the limits, okay? Now, I am thankful to God I'm not my own bad sermon illustration today that I was able to test the limits. I'll put up the next slide and you can see I could go, if you look at the odometer, I was able to go three more miles on nothing and was able to get gas. I was able to make it to the gas station. And so the point is of that, I don't know, other than don't try to go on empty too much further. I don't know how much further I could have gone. The goal is not how empty can I go or how little prayer can I get by with in my life. That's not the goal. The goal is to see how much prayer I can have in my life so I can go further, I can go faster, I can impact more. There is more capabilities inside of me, more that I can do, more that I can see done. And not to see how little can I get by on with as little amount of prayer as possible. And I want to talk about that. We've been talking about this for a while. Um, and just since the first of the year, challenging all of our people to get into a rhythm of prayer and to where it's a part of your daily life. And we've had a lot on that. And you can sign up and still be a part of that. We've got another week of that. Just kind of hopefully developing that rhythm in your life. But let's ask the question today. How much time do you pray? Now, again, the total measurement on a person's prayer life is not how much time they spend in prayer. But if you're not praying, then, okay, then whether you measure it by the clock or you measure it by the length or you measure it by the depth, we, we can talk about that all day long. But let's measure it for a moment by the amount of time 
Okay, now, so I'm going to base this off of a Newsweek study that came out a number of years ago and, uh, and added even some more into it, that a person's life, if they live 70 years, what does that look like? If you live 70 years, you're going to spend 23 years sleeping. Some of y'all are going, yes, more sleep. Uh, 29 years, uh, excuse me, nine years, excuse me, watching TV, six years traveling, 17 years working, six years eating. All right. Now that's, that, that's interesting how much you eat. Now this uh, next one uh, that we put in there, six years on social media. When this study was done, social media wasn't even around. But it's interesting, about a week or so ago, I saw a, a news report on the BBC and pulled up that information and read that study and found that we spend an average of two hours a day on social media, okay, across the Western world, that is. And as you think about spending two hours a day, I had somebody smarter than me do the math on this, and they factored up, if I live 70 years, that's six years on social media. That alone, now I'm not anti-social media, I've got them all, okay? But that alone will tell me that I have time to pray. Uh, John Piper said it like this, one of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook, and this would be Snapchat or any other other, will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not for the lack of time. We have had, we've got plenty of time to pray. We've got as much time to pray as we want to pray. You can go on back to the study, six years resting, two years dressing, one year in church, if you live that average 70-year-old life. But how much time praying? Again, going into the deep dive of how much time does the average person pray? If one, uh, 57% of America, according to the Newsweek study, said that they pray once a day. Okay, if you pray once a day, and you pray an average of five minutes in that day, how much will you pray over the course of your life? Eighty-nine days. Everything else I said was measured in years. This was measured in days. Not even a quarter of a year do we, do we spend time in prayer, if we're just the average person. So here, the, the challenge is to call us out of this lethargy of prayer. And I know that for prayer, for some, it's mystical, it's weird, it's who am I talking to, and the neighbors are going to think I'm talking to myself, or my spouse is going to think, they, or I don't say the right words, or I don't know the right combination to get into God. And, and I tried that once before, and it didn't work, so I'm not going to go. There's so many things that will derail us from an ongoing communing with God rather than just talking to God. Again, we talked about that last week. It's not prayer. is not me telling God what he needs to know about me. He already knows it. What it is, is me in a communing relationship with God. So it's ongoing. It's not, it's never ending. And the thing is, is that when God does, when we engage in this communing relationship with God, God does a work in us. Not only does he work in our prayers, but he does a work in us. And that's really what I want to focus on today. What kind of work does he do in us? Oswald Chambers said it like this. Every time we pray, our horizon is altered. Our attitude to things is altered. Not sometimes, but every time. When we pray, God does this incredible work in us. Now, I know when we pray, many times we are going to God and saying, God, would you alter the circumstances of my life, my health, my whatever, whatever, but what times, many times, God is trying to alter us. He's trying to change us. He's trying to do a deeper dive into 
us into our lives. Take your Bibles and open to the book of James. Way back in the New Testament, we're going to go to a skeptic. We're going to read from a skeptic today. Now, he is not always a skeptic. James is the half-brother of Jesus, but he grew up a skeptic. Now, can you imagine for a skinny minute if Jesus was your older half-brother and uh, everything that went wrong in the house when mom and dad had something to say, they never looked at Jesus and they never said, now, what did you do wrong? No, Jesus was the perfect son. And so James grows up in this family and he grows up not believing that Jesus is God. That's why I like it. It's a very authentic story of an unbelieving person growing up in a Christian home, literally a Christian home. But he's an unbeliever. He becomes a believer, comes a follower of Christ after the resurrection. There was something that triggered, okay, everything that he'd been doing, I mean, he's going to conquer death, hell, and the grave. I'm going to lean in. And so he becomes a leader in the early church becomes a big leader in the church in Jerusalem. In fact, we believe, many scholars believe, that the book of James is actually one of the very first books that was written, one of the very first letters that was written to the early church. He writes it in James chapter 1, giving you a lot of context here. James chapter 1, verse 1, he writes it to the church, to the believers that are scattered abroad. Because the persecution of the early Christians in the church in Jerusalem had started to happen. Lives have started being killed. Stephen's been stoned. Paul, Saul's been watching it all unfold. He's been overseeing it. He's on the road to Damascus to even kill more. It's this dark, dark, dark time. And the church just goes like crazy, scattering abroad. So what James does, the half-brother of Jesus, who's now a follower of Jesus, does is they need to get the word out. They need to help these new believers figure out the rights and the wrongs and the ups and the downs because they're, they're all scattered abroad. So really what you have in the book of James is you have a very quick, highly practical, if you haven't read it, how-to book on the Christian faith. You want to know how to live the Christian life? Read the book of James. And the thing is, is that James has been compared to the Proverbs. It's the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's great little nuggets of wisdom, sometimes broken up in context. It doesn't have a clear, easy flow to it. He's not dealing with heresy. He's just helping them to know how to live the Christian life. And the last chapter and the last theme and the last thing that he has to say was, guys, gals, pray. And when do you pray and how do you pray? And in fact, he gives probably the most densely packaged discourse on prayer than anywhere else in the New Testament. I challenge the first gathering. I'll challenge you the same thing. You find a more densely packaged exhortation on prayer in the New Testament. I'd like to know where it is on prayer because he packages a ton of content that I could spend an entire series of messages on. That's the context. Now go to the last part of James as he's wrapping up his letters, helping them to live out the life that they're called to live. And this is what he says. And he gives them kind of the criteria prayer. He gives them what's going to happen and, and so forth. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church. You can see here, even though this is 15 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, 15 years after in the early church, there was already some formation of some church leadership council going on. And let them pray over him 
anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And he has committed, if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah, now he gives us an example of it. Elijah, you remember Elijah? Elijah was a man of the same nature, just like us. He's just like us. He's no different than us. He's no better than us. He's no worse than us. He's just like us. Yet, at the same time, he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. What does God do in our life when we live a lifestyle of prayer? When prayer is not something you do, it's something you live. When prayer is not something you talk to God about, but something you commune with God about. When prayer is, becomes a healthy rhythm of your life, what is God going to do in you as much as He's going to do through you? And I kind of want to answer that question today as we look about 50,000 foot level down at this because I'm not going to cover everything. Again, it's densely packaged. could be a whole series into itself. But let's just look at three adjustments. Three adjustments that God makes in our life when we become people, men, women, followers of Christ in prayer. One, we invite God into all the seasons of our life. And boy, don't we have them. We have winters and we have summers and we have droughts and we have monsoons. We have it all. And God gets invited to be a part of it all. God is not a compartment that you go to whenever you need Him. He's not an emergency uh, fire extinguisher that you break open the glass and you pull Him out and you blow, blow out your fires whenever you have a fire going on in your life. Prayer is something that happens in all of the seasons of our life, whether they are good or bad. Now, I told you last week that the verse that God has kind of laid on my heart for the year, I don't know if it's my verse, it could be your verse, it could be all of our verses, it speaks to all of us, but on January 1st, he showed me this verse, and I've just kind of been meditating on it for now several weeks. And this is what it says, the land that you are going over to possess. So for me, I'm thinking, okay, 2018 is the land that I'm going over to possess. You're going to have my hills and valleys. Ah. Uh. It means I'm going to have some good times and I'm going to have some bad times. It's going to be easy at times. It's going to be joyful at times. It's going to be sunshiny at times. It's going to be dark. It's going to be dreary. It's going to be difficult to climb. I'm going to hurt. I'm going to fall on the rocks. There's going to be some things. I don't know what that means, but I tell you what, I don't want to go this alone. But you know, isn't the truth of all of us? We all should not want to go this alone. We're all going to have hills and valleys. There's nothing unique about that verse for me. It's not for you and for all of us that we're all going to go through these hills and valleys. And you know that you've lived long enough. You've experienced the hills and the valleys. But the everything we come back to when we talk about this prayer, when we talk about God being a part of all the seasons of our life, and then we've got to understand this is a relationship that we are on. This is a relationship that we're talking about. This is not merely something we go do at the church and we go do on a bad day or we go do with the clergy or a person of the cloth. No, prayer is a relationship with God. In fact, when I think of other verses like Psalm 23, I think Psalm 23 and it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Makes me to lie down in green pastures. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That sounds like some hills and valleys to me. But the beautiful thing about that, it it makes it very clear that everything swings, everything is based on the fact that the Lord is my shepherd. 
That gives me the confidence through the valleys. That gives me the confidence on the mountains. That gives me the ability to navigate it all. That gives me the ability to, to, to be able to handle life. Now, I came across this other verse. Just, I mean, this is a verse. These are common verses, verses that I've memorized. The wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not faint. You know, what a beautiful promise to have. But you look at both of those verses. Those, both of them have are promises with conditions. Are you waiting on God? Are you allowing Him to lead your life? Because if you're not, you're going to be climbing the hills and the valleys of of life no matter what the hills and the valleys are. And the thing about that is when you go it alone, you go it alone. When you go it with Him as your shepherd, you're never alone. When He's invited into whatever season of life that you may be in, you're never alone in those seasons. So let's talk about three seasons because He mentions three seasons in in these verses. One is there's a season of suffering. Some of y'all know full well what this season is because you might be there right now. Is anyone among you suffering? what's What's the antidote to this? Let him pray. So what's the antidote to to this? It's petition. It's to to bring our request to God. It's to petition God. God, I need help in this this suffering. In fact, you dive into the meaning and the root of this word. This word word doesn't just mean that I fall down and bump my knee or I'm hurting externally. It actually means that we hurt internally, that there's an emotional pain that we might go through in life. Some of y'all, you, you, you mask it, you cover it up, you put on the makeup, you go to the, uh, you, you, you go to the gym, you look good, you, you got the nice clothes and you, you're driving the fancy cars and you live in the big houses and on the outside you look like it's all together. On the inside, you're suffering. The word there is a present active indicative. What that means, basically means, it's, it's written in the Greek form in present. It means it's happening right now. It's active. It's happening to me. And it's an indicative. It's ongoing action in my life. See, there's some things that have happened as you watch the news. If you've seen all these, these situations, these people coming out about the abuses that they've gone through. That happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, happened whenever they happened. And the darkness and the pain of that, the reality of the emotional pains that we carry, we get up every morning and for the rest of our life, if we're not careful, we carry this suffering burden with us. And we don't get free from it. Just in time. Time does not heal all wounds. Sorry, it's not in Scripture. Time does not heal all wounds. What are you supposed to do with these wounds? You're supposed to just ignore them and whitewash over them and forget them that they even happen? And listen, if you think you're here today and you don't have a wound, guess what? Wake up to the reality. We all have wounds. John Eldridge, in one of his books, said, Every man carries a wound. I've never met a man without one. No matter how good your life may have seemed to you, you live in a broken world world full of broken people. Your mother and father, no matter how wonderful, couldn't have been perfect. She is the daughter of Eve. He is the son of Adam. So there's no crossing through this country without taking a wound. And every wound, whether assaultive or passive, delivers with it a message. The message feels Final and true, absolutely true, because it is delivered with such force. 
our reaction to it shapes our personality and in every significant in, in very significant ways from that flows the false self that's the facade that we go on into this world most of the men and this could be women you meet are living out a false self a pose which is directly related to his wound is anyone in this room suffering from somebody, something, some event that has happened. You're not alone. God does His deepest work in our darkest days. God just does something. In the dark moments of your life, don't run from them. Lean in to them. C.S. Lewis said it like this, God whispers to us in our joys, He speaks to us in our difficulties, but He shouts to us in our pain. One prayer that I am learning, I emphasize ongoing, I am learning to pray and regularly pray whenever life is full of suffering in my soul, in my dark insides, is I don't ask God, what are you doing to me? I ask God, what are you doing in me? What are you doing in me? Because whatever you're doing in me, I know it's going to be for my good. I know it's going to be for your glory. I know it's the right thing. It's the, it's the good thing. In fact, according to James chapter 1, so you don't see this any way out of context, he even says that. James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and your steadfastness have its full effect in you that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. See, God is doing something in our sufferings. We didn't ask for it. We didn't go out looking for it. It came to us. It came to us in the night. It came to us with vicious, uh, uh, with vicious abuse or neglect or, or, or pains that we are still trying to fight through and live through. But my goodness, God is trying to do good things in us through them. So when you're suffering, pray. When you're cheerful, the seasons of life, when you're cheerful, what do you do? You give thanks and you praise because of what you're going through. And that's exactly what he tells us to do as, as, we, as, as we go on reading. He says, let him sing praises. Let him, let him, let him, let, him let, let it out. If you're cheerful, and this word is actually only used three times in the entire New Testament, so you go to Josephus, who's an early century, first century historian, and you read when he uses the word to kind of get a full breath of the, of the word, and it actually means courageous. The idea of being cheerful is being courageous. Hey, I can conquer the world. When you're cheerful, there's nobody stopping you. And that's awesome. But it's not about you and what you can do. It's about God and what he's doing in you. So you'll notice in each one of these, everyone, whether you're in a down dove suffering season or you're on a, a mountaintop joyful season, every season you're in, it turns us, points us, drives us back to God when we live a life of prayer. Here's another one. Don't miss this one. Is there sickness among you? Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him Call on the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Now, sickness in our day and age is, is, is one, we bring on a lot of our sicknesses, okay? Our lifestyles, our eating habits, our lack of exercise. Look, look, at, look at American culture today. I'm sorry. 
I was there once, so I'm, I'm speaking to the choir. We got to watch out. We're killing ourselves by the lifestyles that we're living. I say that in love and grace and reality that we've just got to wake up to this. Even the World Health Organization says that 70% of the world's illnesses are lifestyle related. And so we just got to realize that we are bringing some of this on. Okay, but, 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 but what about those who are living the good life, eating their kale salads and exercising every day, and they go to the doctor and they find out they have that thing that's going to take their life, that it's inoperable. Maybe it's not going to take their life, but it's just going to have to live with it for the rest of their life. There's no answer. There's no cure. There's no, what, what, what do you do with that, Mike? Is anyone among you sick? Let him, let him. Notice the responsibility is on the person who is sick, not the elders, not the church leaders. Let him call on the elders of the church and let him pray over them. Let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. So it gives us three quick processes. So if you are sick, you know somebody who is sick, you need to jot these down. You need to remember these verses. He tells us what we're to do. Number one, list enlist others to pray for you. Don't keep it to yourself. If you're like me, what you'll want to do when you get sick, when you get the bad report, when you're feeling the suffering coming on, it's like, I don't want to bother anybody. They have their life, I have mine. I don't want to bother. I don't want to intrude on anybody. And so I'm just going to keep it to myself. And I, and I get in this mode of, I say, listen, you, want to, you step up, you call on people to pray for you. Now, last week I said prayer is private, but it starts in private, but it goes to this public arena whenever a community comes around. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But just realize you need other people praying for you. We're going to do something at the end of our gathering here where we're going to have all around the front and around the landing area up there. We're going to have my prayer partners, deacons and spouses and pastors and spouses, and they're going to just be scattered around the room. And these are the people that I go to whenever I need prayer. They come to me when they need prayer. And you are welcome to go and enlist other people to pray for you because you're told to, because it's the right thing to do. Number two, enlist medicine whenever possible. You know where you get this, Mike? It says anointing him with oil. Now, there's, there's several different perspectives on oil. So let me give you a little bit of a context here. In the New Testament, just this word is only, or oil is only used in an anointing medicine kind of way one other time. All right. So this is, uh, this is not like uh, a lot of times in Mark six thirteen, Jesus is, uses it talking about it in a medicinal uh, realm. So there's three different views on this anointing with oil. Is it figurative, figurative of God? And it's not re- something you do in reality. Is it, is it uh, actually the, the spirit of God that you're anointing them with? And you got some kind of special oil and, and it's only in the, only the clergy have this special oil and it represents uh, God or something like that. Or is it medicinal? Three different views that are out there today. I lean towards the, the, the final view. Now, we're going to talk about Jesus and how he fits into the equation here in a moment, but let's just hang on to this, that we enlist medicine. We bring medicine in to the equation as we can. And I base this on the fact that in the first century, oils were used in medicinal arenas. Galen of Pergamum, first century physician who wrote on it, was a leading Roman physician, authority till the middle ages on this used 
oils for everything from snake bites to paralysis to, sorry, constipation. You can use oil for anything. Sounds like some of our grandmothers. You know, you, you, you take kaopectate for whatever, or you take a castor oil for whatever. It, you know, it's that, that kind of mentality. They, they saw in this that, that this oil had medicinal values. And so by all means, he says, use the medicinal values. Use the oil. Even the Good Samaritan, the story in Luke chapter 10. What does he do? He takes him and he anoints him with oil. He tends to his wounds and he takes care of him using oil. So I believe oil here is used as a medicinal cause. So what am I saying? Whenever you're sick, you call on godly people to pray for you. At the same time, you go to the doctor. You take medicine. You do what you got to do. I like the way Mark Batterson said it in his book, Circle Makers. He said, you need to pray as if it all depends on God, but you need to work as if it all depends on you. And that's a good approach. So you take the medicine, you do what that. Oh, what, I won't have faith if I take medicine. No, no, no. You're having faith in taking the medicine because you're also doing number three. The third thing we do in times of sickness is trust Jesus to do the healing. Now, you've got to be real careful with this. You've got to be real, real careful with this because some people have abused the healing ministry of Jesus. See, we are called to believe in miracles but to trust in Jesus. You believe in miracles, but you trust in Jesus. Too many people believe in Jesus, but they trust in miracles. There is a difference. Who is the object of your trust? Where is your trust on? Is it on the, on the miracle or is it on Jesus? See, Jesus will heal some, but he will not heal others. I can take you to scriptures on that, but for the sake of time, I don't have it. But here's what reality is. You go to that verse again, verse uh, 14. He says, then let him pray and anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I want Jesus to be a part of my healing story. I want Jesus to be a part of my sustaining story if he doesn't heal me. I, I want Jesus to be in my story and to be the answer to my story no matter what I'm going through. He's invited to all the seasons of my life even if I don't get the answer I want because I'm not trusting in miracles. I'm trusting in Jesus, but I'm believing He can do what He wants to do. The great thing is, is you can go to secular universities around the world and you can find study after study after study. And if you want to write me, I'll send them to you. Studies that have found that when you integrate faith and prayer into your physical sicknesses, there is healing that comes. Secular sources are saying that. Invite him into all the seasons of your life when you're a person of prayer. Number two, when you're a person of prayer, it connects me into a transformative community. Notice I'm not walking alone. I'm no longer, if I'm sick, going alone. I'm no longer, if I'm suffering, going alone. I'm no longer, if I'm cheerful, going alone. I'm praising it with the body of Christ. I'm coming into community with one another's. He talks about it in verse 15. He said, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. Now, is it going to say that he's going to physically save everyone, physically make well? Or is, this, is he now gone into talking about spiritual sickness and spiritual disease? Because it certainly leans us to that. And the Lord will raise him up as he has committed sins. Now he starts talking about sin. He will be forgiven. 
So sometimes sin relates to sickness and sometimes it doesn't. And again, I don't have time to unpack all of that. But here's one of the things you don't want to miss because he gets to the application in the very next verse, verse 16. Therefore. Therefore. Because of everything he just said, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. God, help us that we stop isolating ourselves, pulling back whenever we are going through suffering, when we are going through joyful times, whenever we are going through painful times, sick times, that we would isolate ourselves. We isolate ourselves whenever we, we, we don't want to be a bother to someone else, whenever we don't want to uh, involve, we want to handle it ourselves, we want to push through. Stop it. That is secular humanism in your faith. You can't do it alone. You weren't called to do it alone. You were called to do it in a transformative community. Whoever isolates himself, the Bible says, rebels and seeks his own wisdom, seeks his own desires, turns against wisdom, does it his own way. Don't do that. One of our core values around here is that we want to help promote transformative communities with one another. Now again, I don't have time to talk about all the 58 one another's in Scripture. I had a whole series of messages a, a year and a half ago on that. But the point is, is that, that what happens when we're sick and we're suffering and we're joyful and we're going through it and we need prayer and I, I want prayer and I need to pray and I got life unwrapping, unraveling in front of me and my tank is empty, where do you go? You find brothers and sisters in a transformative community that will pray for you, will pray with you that you can get real and raw, that you can even confess your sins to one another. If you're not, you will be isolated and you will be alone. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk in North Point New Members class about what it's like to be a part of a church who says that we exist to promote transformative communities with one another. Do you want to be a part of a transformative community with one another? I pray to God you will, whether it's here or somewhere else, find it, get a part of it. Because if you isolate yourself, you make yourself vulnerable. You go it alone. When we lived in Africa, we enjoyed game viewing. One of the things I loved was was watching zebra. Just watching them run and seeing how and knowing that every zebra and every stripe on every zebra is unique to that zebra. It's like the thumbprint of God on the, on, on the back of a zebra. That there's no zebra that ever has the same stripe as somebody else. And one of the greatest defense mechanisms of a zebra, we learned this living there, was to run in herds. When the prey, cheetah, lion is coming after you, you run in a herd. You stay together because the the lion's depth perception is so weak that they can't distinguish between which lion is which zebra and it's just one blanket of lines. But if you can isolate them, if you can get one off to the side, he's yours. I'm telling you, you go it alone You're isolating yourself. He calls us to one another relationships, not isolation. Number three, when we live a life of prayer, it proves our character, the character of our soul. Now, 
I'm intimidated when I hear some people pray. But verse 16 gives me hope. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he turns right around in the very next verse and he gives us an example. And he says, and Elijah, who's a person who had passions just like ours. He he was a man just like us. He had stumbled just like us. And he goes on to talk about the powerful prayer life of a man named Elijah. And I don't have time to unpack all all of his prayer life. But I I, I learned this about prayer. Again, I said this last week, that prayer is simply profound and profoundly simple. That as I am in this relationship with God, it, it shows the character of my soul. And am I a person sold out living for Christ, believing in Him, a righteous, the fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. It's not long prayers. It's not networked prayers. It's not having everything figured out. Listen, here's the beauty. There is, in Paul told Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. It's you in a relationship with Jesus. And because you're in a relationship with Jesus, he's changing you from the inside out. And as he's changing you and you're praying in this communion with him, he's doing a work that will change the world. You know what? We have to sometimes get to the end of ourselves before we will ever experience the vastness of God the full omnipotence of God. But until we get to the end of ourselves. A couple of years ago, I reached my toes over the edge into myself. When I saw where I could have fallen, and yet I leaned in on the Lord, and I experienced a reality in Him that he just reminded me, Mike, I'm your good, good, good father. And I just want to be in a relationship with you. I want you to have one another brothers and sisters in your life. I want you to be in a relationship with me that you're bringing your sufferings to me, your pains to me, your rejoicings. you're, you're, You're that kind of relationship. But I want you to know me as your good Good, good Father. We're going to do something at this point where I'm going to pray over this room. As a simple person like Elijah, with the same passions, the same stumblings, the same nature as yours. And then the the room will be open. Our prayer partners, I want you all to move right now to just where you're going to be. And there, these are the people around the room and everyone else just being a spirit and a moment of prayer. And I want you just right now to look into your soul and to say, do I have a relationship with Jesus? Is Jesus my mediator? And as you consider your own soul's health and character of your own soul, how's that relationship? 
Is it nurturing? Is it growing? Is it becoming? Or is it stagnant, stale, and dying? I just challenge you to consider praying with one of our prayer partners. If you're here today, you think, man, I've got a, I've got a, a suffering that I have been suffering with for a long, long, long time. I've got, I've got pain. I've got alienation. I've, I feel all alone. Or maybe you say, I've got a sickness and I need someone to pray for me. This is your time. These are your people. These are people I trust, I would go to, and I do go to them. Would you consider? Father, God, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for wanting us to talk with you and not just talk to you. Thank you, Lord for telling us to go to one another's when we're suffering, when we're sick, and even when we're rejoicing, to be in community in such a way that you're forever, forever, ever changing our lives and touching us. Lord, be with us in this moment.